We all tell ourselves stories of who we are and why. But we forget that we have the power to define them. That no idea grows from mewling striped cum to teeth at your throat tiger without a little help, some guidance, and a whole lot of love along the way. I am Jared Surf, and this is Here Be Tigers. Bill, today's episode is our first full attempt at the new Possible Worlds exercise, where you take a few truths of the world, story characters that you write, a particular premise, and ask yourself what if to see what else might which should give you plenty of ideas to play with, discard, or hold up as a mirror to your own work, without any fear of change to its original state. Unless, of course, you feel inspired by, or it sheds some new light. So join us today for the first half of a romp through faith, empire, economics, haberdashery, and perhaps a little Vincent Price. We hope you enjoy. Thank you guys for joining us today. We are embarking upon a new form of the world-building exercises we've done in the past on the live stream. And this is, it's kind of a side grade, I'd call it. There are folks who are quite comfortable taking the thing that they actively work on, like we've been doing with your uh, Mickey 14 game. It stars without numbers where, hey, yeah, here's the premise. Let's just chew on it, see what comes out and give it to the players to have fun with. Yeah, I would. I, I genuinely wouldn't want to try to share my process for that uh, with anybody. <laughs> what process well it involves me talking to you me talking to dexter me drinking um some me listening to weird music from various parts of the world me watching no reservations reruns all kinds of things really <laughs> did, did you ever watch the bourdain judging top chef stuff to pull from that uh, you know i did i didn't but actually the sri lanka episode of no reservations from season five has been a big influence on how i'm portraying the planet dex handed me um so that was helpful so there are folks like ken and dex where if you find your cadre group for an idea story project whether it's for a book film television role-playing game that you just want to workshop the thing but there are often times where you're either too unfamiliar with the thing you're going to write you intend to write or you know too much and you're afraid of making any changes at all or inviting others into it and what they might see do or otherwise inspire in you to do so we have been playing around with a notion we brought up earlier in the show last year of possible worlds. We're going to take some of the same truths as the one in the world you create and make one that's like, see what else may arise. So instead of what if to why, what if and what might, or what if and what else. I forgot the actual phrasing there because I wrote my notes like three weeks ago and that was when I was awake. So <laughs> you're having me on a Saturday. As Dave and I talked about in episode 50, which is the one preceding this, you no longer have to just listen to 90 minutes of me and Jared going back and forth with occasional contributions from other people and hope, <laughs> hope your imagination keeps up. We do tend to run through ideas pretty fast, don't we? Yeah. Well, I mean, we. <laughs> it's very valuable to have somebody you've been talking to for a long time because you can skip over a lot of details that you might not be able to with other folks. Like, what was it we were talking about the other day? I was suggesting that you include um, basically a boss character in one of your uh, 
upcoming episodes decks and you didn't actually know why i thought he should be there until until we got to the end (laughs) (laughs) And, and even though i discarded every bit of that every bit was helpful see and that's that's right to the point there because often when you are in that moment of stuckness or not knowing what's next you get locked in the fear or the expectations i don't think that's good i don't know yada yada you could just take it, run with it, see what happens. Or you could even put what happens to the side after, be inspired by what else might arise from that. So Right. And I mean, I'm pretty sure I was pitching something that really didn't fit with uh, Dex's sensibilities perfectly or the world he's in. Mm-hmm. But it made a lot of sense to me. <laughs> and, you know, I, I, I flippantly say I discarded all of it, but I do want you to know how valuable it was in exactly, I mean, what this episode here is about is that exactly. It's exploring the what if and taking something to a conclusion and then being able to look back, compare that with what you think you want, what you have, and mix it all up. I can give you, uh, if we want later on um, or now, what I actually ended up doing with all that information. I mean, if you want to hold it for later, we can definitely tease the audience for after the break. But if you want to share it now, go ahead. You know what? You know your audience better than I do, so... (laughs) Taunt them it is. Okay. Taunt them it is. (laughs) The the actual... So the rule number two, and this is kind of a combination of rule number one and two, this exercise. The first one is you don't need to know everything, but you do need to write. Just start somewhere, right? Rule number two, ask what if and follow the why. So this exercise, Possible Worlds, is a playoff of that. It's asking what if and seeing what else might. You don't have to use anything that you derive from this exercise, but it can, like a mirror, give you a better sense of what your own world is like or could be like. So putting my money where my mouth is, I'm taking a part of the world I write or taking some truths from that and seeing what else these two lunatics who have joined me on the show today can derive from it. Because as Ken said, the reader, the person taking a moment to encounter what you've created is going to have a different view of that than whatever you meant and put on the page. It is. So, I mean, about what, year, two years ago, I remember getting a hold of Jared about a lyric I had completely misheard that made me like a song way better until I figured out what the lyric actually was. Even something that simple can really change somebody's experience of media. We are going to touch upon something that I have always put to the side, I guess, in the book. It was one of those, oh yeah, that thing's in the story, that's in the world, it has impact and effect. I I know the the gist of it, and I'm writing based on that. I'll get to it eventually. Well, you know how long eventuallys can be. We're all afraid to feed you any rope for that one. If anyone's been following me on this show, they know where this thing started. It's just a few short stories and is now outlined as three books. So they understand the journey here. It's partly why I share it, because all too often we think of the creative process as something more finite, which it's anything but. So tell us about the thing we're going to build out today. I am looking over my notes here, and usefully, when you're inviting your just yourself or others, you want to take a moment to write down the truths that are important. As I said to Ken and Dex, when I do this, typically I do it in prose. I don't know why, for some reason, the limited amount of space keeps me from writing too much. So it's not like I'm trying to go poetic or anything. It's just simply if I only have so much room on the page, I won't try to over-explain or delve too far. I'll just say a thing. We are going to work on the empire, which I have written down the name of. We can keep the name or not, but it's a truth we're going with. We can use or not. What is it? I got a whiteboard. Sure. It's called the Balan, B-H-A-L-A-N, so like Shambhala, Balan, Imperium. Imperium? Imperium. I-M-P-E-R-I-U-M. You see, I had thought that too initially until I realized it's actually E-M-P-Y-R, Imperium, as in burning paradise. Yeah. 
Okay. Makes more sense when you play around with some of the other truths that came up. But yeah. IUM or EUM? Uh, EUM, I believe. EUM. Yeah, like the Latin. Edgar, not Indian. Mm-hmm. Case in point, which world are we talking about? The one where it's E or I? Ken and I have talked about portions of the history leading up to this, I think, in episode, I'm going to get the number wrong, but a ballpark hit at 47. An episode. Were, yeah, an episode not too long ago. We led to effectively kind of the founding and some tenets of it. The leader, de facto leader of it is called the Maitreya because he believes himself to be a savior of the people he's united. And perhaps as a minor god complex, but uh, I'm going to lay out truths of the main faith of the world, very simply, or of this empire, and then some stuff Dave and I derive about commodities and currency and faith. And then I think that's going to give us enough to start with. If we need more, that I can pull from additional notes, but I don't want to overwhelm us with too much, importantly. Because again, this isn't taking what I wrote and seeing what comes of it in my world. It's just taking these truths and playing with them. So core faith of the empire as run by the Maitreya. There are two sibling gods, brothers, one who made the sun and the other the sea from primordial night. The older one who judges both gives and takes life and the younger who guides helps man to survive. So kind of one more primal, this is the order of the universe God, one more, I'm going to help you. I am the God of civilization guidance of everyday life. You guys can tell he's not reading my whiteboard as he talks. I uh, can is shorthanding and he's still accurate. Older one is a real jerk, younger one helpful. <laughs> Getting to Ken's question before, because we talked about our premise up front and talk about carp before horse. The two important parts of this exercise, again, Saturday brain, truths of the world you're going to play with, the ones you're going to effectively export and create a new world with, you need that. The other thing you need is a premise. Remember, specificity is power. So rather than go, what's the empire like? Have a specific question about what the empire was like. In our case, how to build and create a society where those with certain powers are both worshipped and commodified. And I wanted both of those, worship and commodified, because it's a bit of a paradox in those. I want to change the word in the title to leverages empowered people. Leverages is fine. It's a whiteboard. We can buzzword things. Now I really sound like a marketing guy, but like I, I think it's a better word. <laughs> I think it's more encompassing of what we're playing with, yeah. And I was also going to suggest that uh, for your concerns about the word empowered, put a single quotation around it. And that, and that sets, it, uh, sets it out as, this isn't quite the right word, but we're going with it. I think that plays better with leverage with leverages than it did with commodifies, tell you the truth. I, I think in both cases, what we're trying to, con- to connote here is that just because you have power in some means doesn't mean you have power in others. Well, that's certainly something we should try to keep in mind, yes. Yeah. That if, they, they, if these folks, as we're about to outline uh, the truths I'll lay out, do have certain capabilities, it doesn't mean they are, by all means, the ones in charge at all levels. They might be themselves considered elevated or divine and more valuable than others, but they are not the ones in charge of the way this empire goes. So. What I'm about to share with you comes from episode, I want to say 24, where Dave and I spent two hours digging into this weird intersection of a question about a currency and the names of why these things were called a full worth or an advent as coins. And sometimes you start with a small truth and get to a big one. So that was the small truth we started with here, these coins and their names, then the question why. And what we came to are the following truths. Speaking to those who are empowered, we're looking at two categories of folks. There are some who there are some too full of fire and those who dream too much. In both cases, literally and figuratively, it's not like it's purely defined as, you know, Johnny Storm, Flame On, etc. But 
they are themselves too passionate, too fiery, too short-living. But those are two main categories of folks who have capabilities that others don't. They were once seen as divine and would leave some kind of token behind, a piece of scale, hair, a feather, as a favor or as a sign, like an advent, right? Then the first Maitreya, quote-unquote, emperor, because effectively he is, into a currency codified, one advent coin for achieving a great work that any could earn. And this was important. It's kind of a core principle of the empire. If there are means or those who are, if we want to consider them like a small minor Shinto deity or other, not God, capital G, but lesser gods, et cetera, right? If there are those who are more than us or have means we don't, and I'm going to control them, then how do I meet out what they provide? And in his estimation, everyone should be worthy of those miracles or gifts, et cetera, if they've performed sufficient work. Of course, this is something the state judges and provides. And a fourth, to get to the question of Advent to fourth, comes from a full day's work toward any great endeavor you stride or aids for. So let's say, uh, example one, great scholarly sage, huge research project, receives an Advent. He can pay out full worse to anybody who does a full day of work toward that project or toward the completion of it. This is shorthanding a lot, but I didn't want to get into much of the depth of what we discussed, too much of the depth from what we discussed, because we already walked those roads. So is there anything more you guys would want to add to this list before we start playing around in terms of the empire, in terms of technology, in terms of leadership? Or would you rather derive that from what we have here? Well, I mean, I have a lot of questions, but they sort of follow a long way from some of these. So it's a little early to start rolling on them. Do you have one question for you then? Because the interrogation will be part of this. Yes. Do you have any uh, kind of um, environment in which you think, in which you see this empire? Way back, this may be episode two or three, we did a world building exercise where we played with an idea of this being set in not Earth, but something like Earth. So, you know, not exactly our global map, et cetera, but this would culturally, culturally, regionally kind of map onto China and India in terms of region. So large alluvial plains, rich in resources, but high population. Okay. Do we want to derive technology from the truths provided here, or do we want to... I, I know, for instance, in the, in the game, you guys run Stars Without Numbers, the system, there are these kind of presumed states or levels of advancement that are given as a set of truths or premise to play from. Yeah, I mean, Stars Without Number has a pretty straightforward sort of technological hierarchy. I'm going to let Dex explain it because he runs more of the game than I do. Um, there's not too much to explain with it. It really is just uh, the author's vision of what he wants the setting to, to look like. And then he backfills from there technological advancements or lacks of advancement to achieve the setting he wants. And I was going to kind of suggest um, a more derivative uh, technology in, in this exploration derivative going forward from your truths because your truths set up some really interesting dynamics that would feel squished and contorted if you tried to also set them into a rigid technological framework i think that's why i've been hesitant to do so up till now i've been trying to i suppose feel the shape of this location from the smaller truths to the larger ones and i've and as Ken and I talked in our previous episode about this, we kind of delved into the history and the lore that led up to that. But that isn't necessary, per se, to dig into what the actual 
Breath of the Empire is like. Well, okay, because Dex didn't do it. I'm going to explain Star Wars oh, the numbers technology system. <laughs> or at least he didn't do it the way I would have wanted it to. <laughs> I didn't say the words he wanted. <laughs> so the, the core premise of Stars Without Number, right, is that you exist now at a state of technology that is better than Earth's today, but not as good as it used to be, okay? At one point in Stars Without Number, there was a literally galaxy-spanning thing called the Galactic Mandate, who had a bunch of, like, really cool technology. Terran Mandate in core setting. Right. Terran Mandate. Sorry. Okay. <laughs> point is, point is, all right, they had, they had a bunch of, like, really high sci-fi stuff. Like, they put Star Trek to shame. Star Trek would look kind of sh- shabby behind what the Terran Mandate could do. All right. And that all came apart for reasons that are not within the scope of this podcast. And now you're dealing with technology that is what people could still make or could still use after the wheels came off, basically. So it's post an apocalypse, but it's an apocalypse that happened way in the future. So people didn't fall back as far as they usually do in that genre. Right. And there's that premise of some some knowledge is lost, but there's sufficient enough to understand what stuff kind of does. Right. And you can still do some pretty amazing stuff. That's the that's the concept that Stars Without Number has that I think is relevant to this, because clearly this empire was capable of leveraging these people to create stuff that would be difficult, if not impossible, to create in a world where they weren't around anymore, or at least where there were many fewer of them. And I think to your point here, what we're describing here as an empire is like the, the Terran empire, as you mentioned, where what follows from it will live in the remnants of it, but will not fully grasp how to use that, want to use it, or understand why it works the way it does, just that it's there and that they they live off of what's remaining of it. As Dave and I talked about, one of the things that breaks down is the currency. When the Maitreya determined what was worthy of a great work and therefore how advents were distributed. So as an example, we said, for instance, a a village could reroute a river over generations and that would be worthy of an advent. They could earn that as a collective community at, in the same way that one sage in his Ivory Tower, their ivory tower could work toward it. Okay, so I have a I have a very basic question based on that. Go ahead. Let's say that some village completes this river redirecting project. Mm-hmm. Who does the Maitreya actually give the coin to? And this is one of the complications that arises because when it's the sage, right? Right. When it's one guy running a research project, you give them to him. Right. And then they get the collection of force, an estimate of how much you need to dole out to support, run, sustain, et cetera. So people can trade for food money, you know, places to live and so on. And that breaks down. So is this their only currency or is there like a competing regular currency? No, that was the weirdness of this. So we went, the way we I fell into this was the coins themselves, the full worth and advents, as currencies often do, live out past the empire. But their value doesn't have the same weight to it as it used to, in part because different potentates, et cetera, start minting their own and determining what things are worthwhile, et cetera. And it becomes more of just coin conversion, one to 10 or 100, et cetera. And you you won't know, for instance, crossing one border to another, whether the thing you carry has the same worth as it did where you were before. So that's where things ended up just on coinage alone. But I think we should, as a starting point, if we're talking empire building, play with that question. How do you determine if a collective is involved how the advent is granted and the full worth needed out. Well, I really don't want to do that because that seems like a lot narrower than what we signed up for today. Right. I'm not saying we should delve too deep into it. I'm just saying, what's your gut impulse or reaction there? My gut impulse would be that it would depend both on who's giving it and who's receiving it. So it's not a question that can have a single answer. 
Well, who's giving it does, at least in theory, right? It's this Maitreya dude, whoever the current Maitreya is. Yeah, here's what I'm going to throw in maybe one more le- one more set of truths I think will give us a bit of some levers to play with. There are those. They're called, they're, we'll call them sages, scholar sages. Coden is the actual name. It's K-O-L-U-D-U-N. But, K-O-L-D-U-N. So. Yeah, like Codeny, sorcery, is what translates to from the Russian. But the they are effectively the overseers of those who dream too much and are too full of fire, who meet out and determine their use, etc. So I think on some level, you have whoever leads them, which would be, I suppose, Pope equivalent or something like. Well, that's a, that's a pretty, yeah, I'm, I'm going to want to come back to that in a second, but keep going. I'm just throwing this out there as things we can play with. But effectively, the over you have the one who gets the mandate, who says, here's what a thing is worth, I will determine. But there's the practicality of boots on the ground, decisions having to be made. And I feel like if you have these cadre scholar sages who are probably high up in terms of what they control in terms of their esteemed value in society, et cetera, there might be a subcategory higher up like cardinal, et cetera. Well, there's, yeah, there's almost going to have to be for this sort of a weird top down from literally the guy running the country system to work. Um, Some kind of hierarchy of people that things flow down through. Right. I think you end up with corruption-like indulgences later on, probably, but uh, there's got to be some ripple. There's got to be some distribution of responsibility when it comes to the meeting out and measuring and judging. That that actually sort of helps me answer the village question. Good. I think what you're looking at is what in Stars Without Number and was in uh, which and, and derives from basically how uh, China used to be run is, is effectively a mandarinate setup. All right. Um, so there's probably a large civil service and, you know, tests to take to become part of the civil service and people cheat on those all the time and this, that and the other. And from this, you get the Koldunic hierarchy. And probably at some level, there is the regional governor Koldun. And that's who actually gets the money if the village redirects a river. So the local potentate who is beholden to the larger empire receives the advent for having overseen, quote-unquote, the, the thing. and for Right. They're assumed to have been in charge, or at least not to have stopped people from doing it, so they get right. it. Right. And in worst case, they are deemed the most responsible one to mete out all the subcoinage, sub etc., to ensure that it gets distributed properly, gets tracked, and so I, on. I, I think that almost has to be how this works, just rationally speaking. You, you need There's so much documentation you would need. Yeah, there would probably be a lot. But at the same time, if we're looking at a a fairly literally autocratic system, even though it's got levels. You don't really need that much documentation. The Maitreya says, Give, grant unto, you know, Koldun uh, so-and-so seven advent coins for his people who have done great works in my name and things like that. Well, yeah, there's definitely, I feel like there's a lot of ritual and ceremony to the actual announcements. Well, so if you look at um, what commerce looked like, right, uh, before coinage was like a widespread idea it's literally like the pharaoh sends the king of the mitanni xyz and greets his brother and hopes that all is well like they send you know these florid slightly ridiculous letters to each other along with stuff and then they complain at each other about not having been sent <laughs> enough of what the other could produce and this that and the other i asked for two giraffes there's one there's there are a number of them from like the egyptian uh middle kingdom period so you know uh, ten commandments era where Ramses will be writing to somebody out in the Middle East being like, dude, I asked you for cedar. Where's my cedar at? You know, this might sound ludicrous, but I almost want professional messengers whose job it is to soften the blow of those complaints or at least deliver them in ways that are 
I, I'm sure they exist. I'm not sure they're important to what we're working with here. <laughs> no, I don't think I don't think in terms of status they're important. I think they're one of those utilities. Like persistently, the Egyptian royal family had a policy of not sending any of the pharaoh's daughters to marry anybody else. So you get, you know, the king of the Hittites going, hey, hey, Ramses, hey, I hear you got a daughter. Can I marry her? And he's like, no, nah, can't, can't happen, man. Send me one of your daughters, though. That's not how trade works. No, because like the pharaohs were allowed to have basically as many wives as they would wanted, including those daughters and sisters and aunts. Oh, so it's more of since you opened up the opportunity for us to talk commerce. Tell, right. So, so you're open to the idea, but you got to send me one of your daughters because that's just not how it is around here. We don't send Egyptian princesses anywhere else. I see. They're too valuable. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it, it's a weird quirk of the pharaonic system uh, and a little creepy. Don't get me wrong. If you think about yeah. it, <laughs> they were very consistent about that. That they would not let you marry an Egyptian princess. It just wasn't a done thing. I, th I think to your point, you probably have something similar here. Where if we're talking about effectively potentates within the empire, they probably have a certain quota of the of empowered folks, those who dream too much or too full of fire, that are, if not theirs, they all belong to the empire after all, are theirs for everyday purposes. Well, yes, probably. So I, what I'm assuming then is that the Kaldonic system has like sort of two, at least, passive advancement. There'll be guys who are running things somewhere, and there'll be guys who are working on things, broadly speaking. Right, because there are, this is, these, from what I've written of both these kinds of folks, this is something you need to, if you want them to be viable living beings in society, you have to take them and train them to not be problems from a young age. Oh, we're, we're not even talking about those people yet. We're talking about their bosses, right? <laughs> so what I'm saying is like, you've got the really old Koldonic path, which is the one pre-empire. That's obviously not the one in power or necessary rule. Then you have the ones that seem to have gone more into administrivia, right? I, right. I would assume that the sort of overall arc of uh, the balance of power between the two factions is that the longer there is an empire, the more powerful the ones that run land get. Yeah. I would, and I think probably the tension here is that the, the head code oversees both. Maybe initially. <laughs> I, I feel like there would be a push to have two separate, two separate leaderships for that. Yeah. Well, I mean, you got to bear in mind that like in the Christian church, for example, uh, eventually, right, depending on which authoritative source you asked, there was anywhere from one to five guys who were supposed to be coeval and in charge. Which is how, so the Pope originally was just the Archbishop of Rome, right? And theoretically, some of the other archbishops were his equal originally, like before the fall of the Roman Empire and the evolution of Catholicism in the medieval period. Okay. Well, let me, let me offer this one to you, though, because I wrote this scene a while back. It was the question of what happens when you need to replace a Maitreya, because they're not immortal. Oh, it's pretty obvious. The Coldens elect one. They do. So I think this gets to the question of which Coldens elect, and it's the ones that run their individual sex, or the... You have if you have the the ecumenical one, you have the the tutelary one, you have the administrative one, or multiple, depending on how much is required to actually run each of those. Yeah, there's probably some tier of you know I, I'm I'm a really cool guy in the Coldonic hierarchy that gets to vote on my trail. Yeah, I have a bigger hat. Right, they, they probably do have bigger hats. I mean, historically, that tends to be the trend. <laughs> I think we need to put that down. Uh, more important, I, I don't even need to write that down. People know. <laughs> that's not even the truth of this world it's the truth of all of us. that's just the truth right yeah. if, if throughout most of history until the you know like roughly the 19th century the bigger your hat the more important you were like people know this even people who don't know a lot about history well I and mean, one of the things we ended up talking about on the, the currency podcast was the advent of prussian blue as a dye and as an adjacent to that was the use of purple because it was one of the few dyes that improved with age in many cases so 
wealth and value and inheritance was just connoted or indicated in the object itself wrapped around you. This is vested power. Right. I mean, there used to be lots of other uh, paraphernalia, as it were, of being important, you know, orbs and scepters and things like that. But the hats are a good place to start. Dex, I'm going to bounce this off of you. What do you think the regalia is like here? Because we've laid out that there's kind of, if not a pharaonic procession, there's a point at which the advents get late assigned. There's probably some type of, or had been some type of processional to establish that I am deeming to grant you these things, accept them because it has been publicly observed. I was just waiting for the opportunity to say we accept that they're hats. Now we need to talk about what they look like. So, (laughs) So I think these hats, instead of growing upwards in size and character but you want these wide grow outward they, they go wide and the wider your hat is the more stable it is seen uh, it must be stable first of all it must be stable it must be light enough for this person to wear and the wider your reach wider reach and so the buildings this informs the buildings that these people uh live in also because they have to be able to walk through it so the entrances are really wide okay okay so that's um I like this. That's a distinctly anti-historical trend. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I don't think that's the actual reason. The well, no, 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 no. The, the hat thing. The hat thing is fine. I'm talking about big doors on government buildings. That's like not how government buildings work historically. <laughs> they don't want people coming in. They tend to have progressively more restricted access. Like it's a thing. Okay. Uh, the more important they get. But I think that's really cool. So we should probably try rolling with it. I have a, my follow-up question. Hang on, sorry, because this is an important detail to the to the bigger hat system. Do you eventually have hat attendants? I I think that you have to have hat attendants, just like you've got bridal veil attendants. Or uh, I I recall through media that some royalty also had people that carried their various garments. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The cape, their capes, and things like that. Mm-hmm. Somebody's got to yeah. hold on to that stuff. Absolutely. I think so, but only for those those times when they weren't in public view because their hat had to be shown as stable without anybody but that one person propping it up. That's going to mean these guys never go outside, however big the doors of their palaces are. They, why would they need to? They have so much power, they don't have to move at all from their seat. Fair enough. I think importantly, there are also schisms in the fashion you wear. The question becomes, of, do you adorn the hat more or less the more powerful you are? Do you do you stack things on? Do you? No, I, I think I think functionally, the the wider your hat gets, the less stuff is on it. But that might you know be important. I, I see bridge like structures where the bottom part of the hat that extends out is fairly flat with maybe some dangly bits, but creates a uh, more and more uh, obtuse triangle towards the head with frilly, lacy kind of um, architectural structure work. And this may even lead into some engineering innovations for these In the people. field of hats. Well, so now I'm going to just invite everybody to watch the episode from the most recent season of Lego Masters, where they build Lego headdresses. <laughs> <laughs> We're putting this in the show notes. Yeah, because it's really cool, actually, A, and because there are some huge hats on display. Lego Masters overall is pretty great, actually, as a matter of fact. But uh, the hat episode probably speaks to what hat architecture starts to look like in some ways. But I I think as much as we've been joking about hats, I do think it touches upon something that's important in any given culture, the the presentation of status. And usually to an outsider, it seems absurd. Yeah. I mean, I'm going to be honest. If a guy with a two meter wide hat tried to tell me what to do, I would probably laugh at him. (laughs) 
Right, because you don't have the context for why he feels he has the power to. Yeah, among other reasons. <laughs> also, you'd steal the hat. I might or might not. That's too big. I can't get that hat in a car. <laughs> oh, the vehicles. God. Well, it just means these guys are always riding around in something open top. That's all. Again, if nothing's a threat to you, be exposed to the world. Who's going to touch you? Right. Like the Pope Mobile looks sort of, you know, conservative next to what these guys are probably riding around in. Did they ever re- did they ever increase the size of the glass encasement for, to fit the bigger hat? I think the Pope Mobile is no longer in use because it doesn't really fit uh, Francis's overall vibe, but I could be wrong. <laughs> it was always ludicrous, let's be honest. Yeah, but it wasn't his idea. You know, that was it was John Paul II who came up with the Pope Mobile, I believe. And him you could see coming up with the Pope Mobile. But Francis is the kind of guy who, you know, wants to appear very open to people. So I'm, I'm pretty sure he's not using it, but I could be wrong. To your point, there's, there's probably a long ledger that is the edict of hats. Right. If you're a Pope Mobile expert, let Jared know. There, there are. I, I guarantee you. I do think as like a piece of minor bureaucracy that there is an edict of hats, though, because you can't go around impersonating importance with, you know. Eventually, there's going to be some kind of bureaucratic standard mandating at least some things about the hats. Yes. Yeah. I think we have a sense of the the leadership of the 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 architecture in terms of roles to make sure that the everyday works here. I know it was it Kenner Dex. One of you had some questions about the technology itself, the capabilities or things. You're right. No, that, that's that's that's. I'm, I'm sure we both have questions about it because that's a big question, right? That's 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 lots of questions. So let's dig into it to see what we can pick from there. Well, hold on. So let's think about this for a minute in terms of what technology can be driven by empowered people, because that's going to tell you some things that follow naturally from the discussion of how do the Coldens work. Okay. So what kinds of technology can be driven by that? Let's start, I think, with those two full of fire, because on the most literal sense, that's probably the easier to work from. That's a good graphic. Hang on. Let me see if I can paste that in. Are you putting this in the whiteboard? I'm trying. I'm not sure I can. Carry on. For those of you at home, we are we are experimenting with Zoom's whiteboard for the first time. So bear with us as we discover technology. Yeah, I don't think I can. That's too bad. Can you put it in chat at least? Uh, he did. You'll have to edit to show notes from the desk from the Discord later. Oh, it's in Discord. Ah, hold on. I have to at least. Is this it's a good me? hat. That actually doesn't even seem like the most important kind of hat you could have. I like it. <laughs> <laughs> that is yeah you veered over a little bit toward mariachi there but i think it's probably still okay just showing that i'm not an artist you know, <laughs> that's a pretty good hat rendering honestly i don't you don't need to be humble about that no I, th- I think importantly it's a wingspan too because you are dominating space wearing that thing people can't stand next to you imagine someone of moderate to lower height in a hat like that just gonna sw- you would have to give them the birth of the room right you, you pretty much have to give them space Oh, that's actually kind of a good thought. I hadn't even considered. Shorter people may be seen to command more respect because the taller people have to stoop more to see them. Yeah, when you got a hat that big on. Yeah. Yeah, you add that, you put in some veils or whatever, too, if you want, or other or bead curtains and so on, if you like. Things that obscure. There, there's a whole there's a whole threads you can play with here. Of- so, I mean, I'm not an expert on Indian and Chinese haberdashery. <laughs> you don't say. Uh, no, but I will say that this sort of has overall a bit of a Japanese feel to it. Hmm. There, there are definitely wide hats on display in Japan in a, in a couple of places. I'm not an expert there either, but I have seen some. I Was it the wandering priest that used to go around in the, in the wide brim hats? Yeah, the Shinto monks, I think. 
at any rate, it you know this has like a monk sort of feel to it, which is good. It it suits the overall Colden vibe. I'm 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 with it. This makes sense. It, it could have just been a simple sun hat way back in the day. Right. It might have started that way. And then, as you need to know, who has who was the head of the 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 local village for the community? Right. I mean, I'm I'm sure that we could spend literally an hour talking about hats, certain of it, but we really got to stop. <laughs> That's a good hat. Everybody should look at the hat. It'll be in the show notes. I think let's start with those two full of fire on the literal level, because having available combustion that is human powered. Right. Not just human powered, but you got to bear in mind that a significant part of the technological evolution of forging, of metallurgy, right, Mm -hmm. is based on how hot you can make and maintain fire for how long. So I think as a corollary, we are looking to people who can also tolerate extreme heats. Otherwise, that's probably true. They would not last very long <laughs> or on by and large, I imagine there are outliers who don't last long. That's possible too, but on the whole, well, that, that that's their problem in the view of the Coldens in all likelihood. In fact, it's probably a black mark if you have a guy burn himself out. So this is something I was going to throw out here, touching upon to the, the gods as a thread to this. We can see if it fits into where we're going though. The one of the older of the two brothers is the God of the sun by and large, and his body is falling apart. So it needs to be repaired. It's the older one. Yeah, the one of judgment, life and death, et cetera. So within the, the empire, as I had played around with it, one of the ways you acknowledge the ending of one of those two full of fires, they just burn up and go up to give what's left of them over to him. They become part of the body of the sun itself. So yeah, it it, it might be seen, if not a mark, as a black spot, then they, oh, well, you know, at least they serve their purpose still. There's. I would guess it's a little of both. I w- my suspicion here is that if they burn up while they're working, that's, you know, you messed up. If they burn up in some kind of ceremony because they are end of life as far as the Empire is concerned, that might be considered very honorable. Uh, so now we're touching on the concept that uh, somebody else will decide when these people have to pass on because it's bad if they pass on unintentionally. Yeah, Unintentionally right. in the wrong environment, in the wrong context, the social, political, religious. Yeah, right. And that, that actually is a good reason to put other people in charge of them. I'm with you. That's that's a good point. So I think that's where the the emperor, the Amitreas, or where the emperor, emperor kind of codified the architecture to limit, let's say, the accidental things that don't fit into the narrative as well, or at least limit exposure or witnessing of it, I suppose. Because it is important here to talk about these beings as seeing something semi-divine or divine, if not children of the gods and touched by them at least, right? So there is a value to them that is beyond or outside of the everyday norm, but they also provide something essential to society, that, a society that could not work the way it does without them. So I, I wasn't kidding, by the way. The ability to control fire is a cheat code for metallurgy. Absolutely. So I would guess that's probably their main function, quite frankly. Yeah, any forging processes. I, I don't think they could function themselves as a longstanding power source. That seems problematic. Unless you have, because if we're just talking about how long it takes to enrich a source of energy, if you're talking 10 to 15 years until they're at least a reasonable human being, it's not a great investment in terms of an empire into resources. So if construction of architecture, if weaponizing, if all of the parts of you can drive from metallurgy are skipped to reach a higher level with this research. Well, bear in mind, you know, the, the other thing that happens with metallurgy is you have to actually figure out how to alloy things. You have to figure out what's strong, what isn't, that kind of thing. They can't help with that. No, that, that's probably... But let me... Yeah, I'm going to bounce off of Dex because we, we, we're going to play a little bit, I suppose, with the pre-Empire here. How much of that do you want to lay out as having been known in terms of understanding of metallurgy 
before the empire formed? Do you think they were at like Bronze Age or brass? With these people being the discovery of fire, instead of discovering fire outwardly, I think these people were the discovery of fire. And I think that that would have stunted other fire-based or fire-necessitating discoveries because, you know, why do we have to explore this dangerous fire in the middle of uh, a pit that might leap out if this guy over here can completely control it safely? I, I don't think it'll completely stunt that those technological advances, but I think it will hinder them because, again, why take those risks? The only the only people taking those risks are the mad scientists who will eventually be the ones that advance the science, but they're fewer. Right. That might be the mad set of Coden in a village where they go off on a team. I would assume that ultimately those are guys who get recruited into the, the Coldenic hierarchy under the Empire, but not necessarily to begin with. He's right. So it's possible that the Empire itself brings a huge leap in terms of the... They're going to bring the leap that empires always bring, which is organization. Right, yeah. the organization, but also there's there's a greater need. You're building more houses, you're building more equipment, you're building ships, other forms of transportation, et cetera, that are going to require tools, equipment. Right. The empire brings with it a need, to Dex's point, I think, that wasn't there before. I think I can kind of see their technology, their not technology, their architectural technology as primitive, wood, bamboo, because none of those things need fire to be able to uh, you know, shield yourself from the elements, depending on where they are. If, if there was nothing as centralized as an empire, if it was more community-based, if those who had these capabilities were more worshipped, you wouldn't want to overuse them. Well, that also contributes to the earlier go-wide-not-tall idea for buildings. Right. It's uh, I mean, wood is stronger than people think, and you can build pretty high with it. But eventually, you're looking at needing concrete and metal. And if you have a fair amount of open space, you can spread out over the plains. You can spread out beyond the rivers, near the woods. There's less a conflict over location in terms of how much people's. I, I really, I, I, I'm kind of seeing a circle or a spiral as kind of the core shape of this community. And very spread out. These are people that are uh, not unaccustomed to walking long distances. Well, it's going to be squares because it's at some level it's going to be squares because eventually you get to the point where it's kind of hard to build circles. It's hard to do the math on building things in circles, etc. I think that's where you get one of the big splits in architecture, etc. With the empire, you might have had the older history of it being that more rounded structure as we've seen in our own cultures. Right. And then as you get toward the superstructures, et cetera, you go rectangular, square. Right. You get the glorious and unyielding right angles of human architecture as opposed to that of the dastardly Xenos. And, and they're, I'm sorry, I've gone to 40K mode. Um, <laughs> <laughs> let's detour back from that. <laughs> I, I think, too, that, that even that minor, or not minor, but that particular shift in terms of how life around you is shaped in terms of the way a building's full, even if it's not purely rectangular, there's trapezoids, whatever. Yeah, there will be other shapes than just squares. But my point is, ultimately, you end up with right angles and 60-degree angles and things like that, not circles. I think I think it touches upon something, Ken, you and I talked about in the last episode you were on, where there were, there were and still are two perceptions of how the world is. There's the one where there's a kind of pre-world the gods made before now. Right. And there's one where the, that world still exists in the now. And I, it kind of feels like the pre-empire understanding would be more toward the latter, where 
everything is as is here. And the empire has much cleaner delineation of this is now, that's then. Yeah, no, I, I think there's probably an absolute enthusiasm for modernity built into uh, at least the guys running the empire. Yeah, we're talking calendar definitely here in a new calendar, clean. So my guess would be whatever technological level people were at pre-empire, right? One of the reasons there can be an empire is because of some kind of innovation in weaponry or in tactics. Because historically, that's, you know, another one of those, like, pretty frequent correlates. <laughs> Next. Do you think they would weaponize these folks or use them to create weapons? I, I think we're faced with a split. I, I absolutely agree with Ken that uh, that is a very common uh, a, a very common turning point. But I also think that it's not necessarily 100% that we could say, no, this empire uh, shifted it reached its turning point more on an organizational level. These circular, widespread communities became too far apart. And at some point, somebody says, I'm going to build a solid structure here. And they start using clay. They start using these people as the technology to, you know, to, to burn clay or mud into clay, however that process works. I don't know. And that's where we start getting the architecture advancement, the organization that comes from having the separate rooms instead of just big circles, and that their their turning point instead of weapons is fortification. It's fortification, not fortification itself. It's a more codified division of space. It can be and should be both yeah. on different occasions. There are going to be people who are overawed by what the empire can do for them and sign up. Right. And then there is going to be at least one guy or one group of guys, but, you know, with a leader. Right. It's like, nah, that's not for me, man. Let's go. I think I think, too, if we're talking about the use of folks, both in terms of advancement, technological and, and weaponized, you probably do end up at the peak of the empire with a code or a set of code who do oversee those who are empowered that are dedicated to the art, you know, to defense, to warfare, et cetera, to right. the preservation, let's call it, of the known world self-defense yes self-defense self-defense as we continue to grow ever outward a obvious thing for uh so the way the, the you make clay is naturally occurring you harden it with fire is the really short pottery explanation there is a lot more to it that, than that than i don't know but or that i don't know in detail but that's the basic answer you have to often for architecture work in other materials to help reinforce the structure etc but right um the the obvious technology for connecting a bunch of widely distributed you know circular communities and i will point out that the circular linear thing is extremely um of you know chinese thought uh especially as it relates to martial arts but not just uh is roads the obvious technology that these guys could be bringing around is roads roads don't necessarily have anything to do with fire by the way mostly what they have to do with is patience yeah there's you've got roads and i think vehicles eventually Right. And I, I suspect that a thing that might be true, then if we're looking for a open-topped vehicle that you might innovate if you had to have your really big hat be visible, mm -hmm. is chariots. Well, let me uh, propose perhaps parallel. What if these people discover trains before they uh, figure out horse-drawn carriages? Trains are really complicated. That's, <laughs> that's extremely improbable, unless they don't have horses. I am referring to like a, a lower tech version, just, you know, some kind of steam propulsion. Yeah, no, that, that's going to be difficult, if not impossible. 
to have at it. Do you have those who dream too much? Yes, there is that. And that's a good way to get into them, because I think we have a pretty clear picture of what the fire guys could contribute to technology. So let's talk about the dreaming guys and then see if steam engines are plausible. I'm going to still vote no, probably. <laughs> no, but I think it's a good bridge into it. I've been playing around because those who dream too much by themselves in and of themselves are a more nebulous group to begin with. I think on a, an administrative level, if you can keep them mentally grounded and not lost in their own thoughts, they are perhaps a better repository of knowledge if we're talking about, I don't really want to use the Dune equivalent, but there's the, there's the why can I not remember the name? It doesn't matter. You're looking at monks and memory palaces there, almost certainly. Stuff like that. I, I think in the same way, you'd militarize a fair amount of those full of fire to preserve the nation. You do certainly, or you find, I think, those capable in the, in the dream too much. Probably, to your point, emerging out of the need to anchor themselves in the now who become quite adept at just grasping information and not letting go of it. Now, are those who dream too much, are they pulling random thoughts out of the ether that just happen to work? Are they pulling thoughts that don't work along with those that do work? Or are we talking about some kind of uh, ability to see into the future? So this is how I've kind of teased with it in the work itself. We can take this or not, but I'll just give it to you. Going back to that statement of there was kind of the pre-world that is either still now or was then, those who dream too much pull from that. So things that okay. could be, should not have been, had been. There's a, I don't want to say it's like a, a designated category of things they're extracting from, but there's a prima materia, I suppose, that they can play with. The, the level of control over the results of that is dependent upon them, their own grounding and expectations and understanding of what they want to make. I now have an alternate suggestion for a technological innovation in the field of vehicles that one might accomplish with people who can make the impossible happen Go ahead. without it needing to be a railroad. Aircraft. Mm. Mm, okay. Are you thinking airships or wings? I really don't want to be thinking airships, but they're a lot easier to get to. <laughs> they're also, they also tie into those two full of fire. Yep. And I think, I think part of the question here comes into proportions, right? If you have those who dream too much and those to a fire, but they're not a large percentage of the population, then you do need to create technology that the majority of the folks can use for everyday stuff, as well as having more exclusive things that are for those in power, too. I wanted to jump back to the dream too much because I had a thought there as well. What if it's some kind of uh, genetic memory? We're already in the, the realm of magic with a lot of this stuff, so maybe a magical genetic memory some kind of actual lineage passed down from whoever was here before, or if they weren't human, from the ancient, ancient, ancient uh, ancestors. It's cumulative, but it's not, it's not linear. You're not necessarily going and saying, okay, what was you know, 2,500 years ago on April 48th? You might be able to. I don't know. I'm just I'm throwing it out here. Do, do we feel it? No, because, okay, so what, if, if, if they can... If they can roll back like a security camera, that's going to create a lot of problems for you as an author, problems for anybody else who wants no, to I use this setting to do No, I certainly don't mean anything that they can do intentionally. Uh, it would – sorry, go ahead. No, well, it, it, it's it's going to be very inconvenient, right, if there's some kind of perfect, perfect recall available to anybody ever because yeah. that's just not a thing that exists in human experience. Absolutely inadvisable. <laughs> that's why I was asking. No, I, I mean something that um, 
it's just some kind of gene or magical spark that has stayed with that family line through generations, maybe never even appeared until this one guy, uh, you know, uh, among many guys that are called Dream Too Much, happens to access it, happens to stumble into it. However, however, these people are discovered and classified, but they just randomly call back to something that that ancestor of five, ten, twenty thousand years ago saw. So there's a there's a premise. One of the core languages in the book, and it's not important that this be a core language of truth here, but I'm giving it to you so I can demonstrate where the thing I'm giving you comes from, is a Hebrew for numerous reasons. But the phrase that comes to mind is this, the one day many skies, one day many seas. But effectively, there's a thing that has many shapes, one wave or one sea, many waves. There's something, and Dave and I were talking about this in episode 50, if water itself can retain memory or if you could store information in something like water, if not water itself. To your, to your point, they're, if they're tapping into something collective that stores or retains things that passed through it before, right? So if, there's a, if, it's not the, if it's not the lineage, if there's a medium they can pass through that no one else can, and then in the passing through it, gather or derive or glean from it. So it might seem like dreaming to the observer, but it's perhaps more of being an elsewhere them okay then to your point it wouldn't necessarily be fully controlled what they can gather right more like drawing from a well you just get where you draw from the well so the reason i was hesitant to suggest airships is probably obvious to anybody who has any real breadth of familiarity with where that tends to lead in the modern era um (laughs) (laughs) boom but it's a thing that uh, human beings, right, how to fly, have been thinking about for a really long time. So if this is going to be a sort of collective memory of things, unlike what happened in real life, it will be easier to, you know, not have to start from scratch if you're really determined to try to put something in there. And it's also like mimetically, right, something that we, we all are like, oh, yeah, that'd be awesome about. Right. You'd have glimpses of people in the kites or other means or you'd there'd be collected lore of. From these these delves, we'll call them that. Right. Plus, if we're trying to be in Asia, the kite thing is a cool touchstone to, to sort of use. I think it's ironic because one of the things that leads to the end in the book of the Empire is the last Maitreya deciding we're going to go to the skies. We're just going to build an actual rocket arc and get out, get the hell out of here, or at least the we that I think should leave. I had forgotten that, but actually, that that's an interesting thing. So if this is a empire that is in some ways defined by increasing mastery of travel through the air, which it sounds like maybe it could be. I think that's the direction it drives toward. You probably, to your to your point, has an, a, a very well taken care of tended set of roads for the everyday use. Well, not for nothing. Like carrying cargo on airships of any kind is hard. <laughs> it's resource intensive, too. Yeah. Uh, the main use of zeppelins in warfare, and I know this because I've been prepping for uh, never going home, was to look for things, right? And all that really required you you to do was send a dude up there with, you know, maybe like his lunch uh, or some flares, and that was it, right? And so maybe maybe the the availability of flight isn't for everyday use. It is limited in capacity. It can be done, but there are. Because there's a there's a real distinction between a balloon, okay, like a thing that you know 
has a basket under it that you can be in that drifts around in the wind and an airship. Okay. Uh, airships you can steer. Airships require helium fuel, which would be very difficult to uh, achieve chemically speaking. Right. Uh, really, no matter what these guys can do without a lot of fairly modern technology. You can put hydrogen in there, but then if you've got an empire full of people who can make fire, you're just asking for it. Um, that would be one way to end it. Yeah. Like there's there's a non-negligible uh, amount of technology and science that goes into making an airship work, but not so much a balloon. So I, I do think, yeah, you, you have roads, you have chariots, you have processionals, all the big ceremonial stuff that you'd want people to be able to feel the awe and majesty of that you could accentuate with flying objects, kites, et cetera. But those are, somewhat, there's a bit of uh, smoke and mirrors to that where we're pretending to be capable of more than we are. While we might have some capacities that we're working toward, it's not as, in a way, it's kind of the Empire's own advent for itself. Yes, we're going to achieve space flight, but not in this lifetime. This is something that, you know, the intercadre are working toward again and again that they pass Right, down. and these guys are clearly getting car- getting more and more carried away with it over time as the rest of technology advances, right? Which would also explain the expansionism, was it? Because if we're talking from kite to balloon to airship, the leap from all of that to rocket is still pretty drastic. But maybe they maybe they didn't, you know, maybe maybe rocket wasn't actually their game plan. Maybe they tried to go to space with a balloon. Sure. They wouldn't be the first people to do it. Uh, it was tried a couple of times in China with exactly the results you'd expect. But um, like really early on, actually, there was a I want to say it was a Taoist sage. I don't know. It's, it's, a, it's a story that I don't have good recall of. But if I can track it down on the Internet, I'll give you a link. But the dude went to the moon. And if you didn't hear the finger quotes, you should have on a palanquin held up with balloons, which probably means that he went up into the atmosphere and was never seen again. But they all decided he'd gone to the moon because they respected it. Oh, he was eaten by space whales. Probably doesn't mean that. <laughs> but I, I do think there's kind of an interesting as grounded as this empire is in the pragmatic and the everyday, and in the the god of civilization that ostensibly has helped guide them along, that perhaps might be, if not, oh, here we go. I should have shared this. According to the mythos as is, that kind of dreaming seat came out of the god that fell back to earth and what poured out of his skull. So yeah, those who dream too much can be, I could you could, on the mythical sense, be seen as like bathing or swimming or communing in that. Or By contrast, or fishing, something. yeah. Whatever they use to contextualize, it might vary by the individual. By contrast, going up to space brings you to the God who judges you, because that's where that one lives. And there, there are some scary implications there, <laughs> for obvious reasons. And I wonder if on some kind of weird eschatological level, there's this, well, it, we've worked with those two full of fire, but that is the one fullest of fire. You know, why not go to the source itself and tap that? Or well, th- th- Yeah, there's something that feels either deeply impertinent or deeply eschatological about trying to go pay that guy a visit, considering the cultural hit, weight of it, right? <laughs> I'm, we're just going to go knock on the God of Judgment's door. Is also the sun that provides us with light and warmth. Well, I am the greatest Maitreya that ever was. Therefore, I'm going to go up there and he will recognize that I have done well. Let's be honest. We're talking empires. That level of hubris is... Certainly not impossible. I'm just like... I'm trying to put it in con- in, in a more in a less vague context, like why you might do that, you know? I, I think the actual reason for that would be that you've deemed that there is a better way or other place you can be in a, a possible world, perhaps, better than this one. I mean, a, this is having some real attack and dethrone God vibes. I, I think it's less we're going to eat the sun and more we're going to leave behind the mess we made. Oh, okay. That, that's a whole separate topic. As, as a third option... 
What about uh, just understanding? If I'm not misremembering, isn't that what the Tower of Babel was all about? Ostensibly, I think. I think honestly, it's probably all three. To get enough people on board with this kind of project, you probably would have the folks out of pure wisdom, knowledge, or curiosity—the ones out of hubris—and mm-hmm. then the actual agenda alongside that. If great, we built the ship. Now we can go somewhere else. Right. I, I think. I think the emperor's agenda is almost certainly based in hubris, but probably not everybody helping them is. <laughs> no, I, there's so much you could possibly glean about the nature of the world itself if you could go speak to both gods. Right. Without using the medium of those who dream too much, who let's be honest, aren't the best conveyors. They may not be very reliable. No, I, I imagine there's a lot of contradictory stuff because they all filter whatever they experience, and even if enough of them can be turned into effectively walking databases or computers or codices there's and we probably do end up with a i kind of imagine the ones that are more grounded in the know and more capable of storing and pulling upon the stuff in the now are less capable of dreaming they might still fit within that category but most of that let's say storage capacity is used there's very little space left in them to experience something new some of those might actually just continue to pretend that they are those who dream too much and come up with legitimate you know, inventions or discoveries of their own and claim it was a dream. Oh, yeah. No, I totally fished this. Yeah. What are you talking about? Mm-hmm. Because I came up with it. It was the less reasonable. Please ignore the glassware and smell of sulfur and all of that. I, I definitely dreamed this. Yep. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. One of the values of exercises like these is that you do, when you work with a set of truths that isn't the one, aren't the ones you're used to, encounter things that seem to you absurd, but do within the context here. Yeah. You do in the context of the world you're now in make sense to the people who live in it. Uh, Ultimate. Okay. And actually, you know what, above that, we're going to put overall cultural obsession with flight. Yeah. Because I do think given the history of their faith and the conflicts that led to the empire between those who adhere to the tenets of the gods and other things in the world, to what isn't known about life long ago, but is presumed to have been a judgment of uh, the God of the Son a long time ago that's left everyone here. There are those kind of deep unanswered questions, as well as kind of as the fear of if it was done once, what's to keep it from happening again? So overall cultural obsession with flight, ascension, or transition to somewhere else. Ken had kind of presented to me the idea that there was a, um, I, I called it a Dr. Robotnik-like villain. Um, cause it, it went into a, a very black and white moral area overall. I don't know if that's what Ken was trying to portray, but, you know, uh, tying it all in, uh, kind of put it into that. There is, here is a villain that is responsible, at least in part for a lot of the things that, uh, are being explored as, uh, a threat to the universe in this campaign that I'm running. I say that it was mo- that, that conversation was monumentally helpful, despite me discarding all of that, is because it helped. It, it painted that picture for me. It helped me compare and contrast that to the feel of my campaign, and my campaign has been squarely in the gray area it would be nice and i I do occasionally have uh actual you know this guy is a villain there's nothing redeeming about him here and there very rare 
But you know, the overall campaign is very, very much in a gray, murky, morally murky gray zone. And so being able to compare my campaign with this standout villain, I realized, no, I need to stay away from that and stay away from, you know, steer away from any kind of villain. The the impact that I want any discoveries in this new star system, which is why we were talking about it for the players, is for the actual players, the participants in this story to uh, either stay in the gray zone or to point their fingers and determine who they think the bad guy is. That's kind of a, an ongoing premise of my campaign is that moral gray and how do you find a path through it? So in your case, having someone else hold up a reflection based upon the truths you gave them that you'd used and seeing what they came to from it gave you a better understanding of what it is, in fact, you were trying to create. <laughs> I actually have a similar conversation. I had a similar conversation with Ken. At some point, I want to defend the villain, but t- t- tell everybody else what else I contributed. <laughs> <laughs> no, Ken is the villain Deep. advocate. Let's just uh, establish that now. Uh, yeah. You guys keep giving me all these like extremely loaded negative titles on this, on this <laughs> podcast. I, I, maybe at least a little, yes. To make you feel any better, I was talking to uh, Stephen, Dave's brother, the other day about uh, some of the stuff we've been running for episodes that will become bonus content soon. And Stephen said, you know, one, he said, you, you bait me into these things too much. And I forgot what it's like. And I went, okay, what is it like? And he shows a <laughs> picture of the emperor from Star Wars going, good, followed by the context quote unquote, players realizing that I'm never going to stop them from doing terrible things. <laughs> so you're not the only one. Okay. So I'm going to respond immediately to that with, are you familiar with the sickos meme? No. Okay. Well, if you're not, it's a out of context panel from a chick tract where there's a guy going, yes, yes. <laughs> Looking out his window okay. with the label sickos on him. And it's become it's it's a fairly recent one. It's 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 been played up a bit more uh, more more lately, but than, than it used to be. But uh, the bottom line here is that's the reaction I'm trying to create, or I'm following. You know that that's the song that my heart is following when when I make these suggestions. Okay, so to, to, to kind of give a great button on that, back when Dave and I were co- were playing around with the idea of uh, the friendship is magic premise if villains caught on to it if having been defeated by the saturday morning cartoon heroes too often they realized that the overwhelming power in this universe was in fact friendship was literally and actually friendship like that was the lever you had to pull yeah what would happen if they too decided to use it and then the question became who's the villain here obviously the main villain's been defeated through friendship being magic who's left and there's the, the ostensible villain, No Good, who is, of course, the henchman of the previous villain, who's learned from his superior's mistakes. But this is he's a punch clock villain. He's here. He actually cares about his employees. He wants to get the best results for them, etc. Who's the real monster pulling the strings? And I forget which one of us said it, but one of us said, I want it to be the cat. And I'm looking at the rule system we're using fellowship for villain motives and trying to find what maps to cat until I came down to, your villain just hates everything. Yeah, it was. I don't remember how we arrived at like the villain is clearly the mascot, but we definitely got there at more or less the same time. Yeah, it was. You were you were talking about something mascot, yeah. and I'm looking for villain motives, and Ken went, "Yeah, that." It's like, yep. It's, as a counterpoint to Dex, is sometimes the villain doesn't have to be gray. the The oppositional force is just monstrous. Well, so 
I mean, my response to Dex in the moment as as we were closing that conversation down was, you know, I didn't really mean this to be like a load-bearing boss for your star system or, you know, some kind of grand, you know, monologuing villain. I mean, he probably would have monologued if I was running the game. Don't get me wrong. But like, <laughs> that's the fun of it from my perspective. But just like an, a, a single, you know, a single point of contact where uh, you want to know about this, this guy knows. Go deal with it. Yeah, and and I recognize that, but just just the presence of somebody that that caused these problems is that it's actually that point that I realized I needed to avoid, and any yeah, singular and see, that's that's fair, right? Personal like... or yeah, no, no, I'm I'm not. Please, uh, Ken, I absolutely respect your your input, and I don't want to dismiss it. If anything, I like the conclusion you came to. Tell you the truth, but you know, like it's important that you got there. And <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, that's that's actually why I had to take that out. Is it just it didn't fit your overall campaign, you know, themes? Really. His response helped you understand what the underpinning tone and theme you were aiming for were themes were. Yes, the game I ran for about three and a half years was based off of the premise of what if we take something similar to Harry Potter Magic School and give you guys the the run of it. And very quickly, like session four or five, the players said, we don't actually want to be in the school. We want the world instead that you've described. <laughs> I had all these threads of oppositional forces and things that would happen if they messed with or didn't. And eventually what it came down to was them traveling toward the end of a major arc in a place of judgment where each of them had the chance to be the monster if they hadn't already. We actually switched systems for one of them over to Fellowship from Dungeon World and let Dave play the archvillain, I forget what the name of the actual role of the book is. Overlord, I think. Overlord, yeah. And no one realized it. Well, except for me, but that was because my character was complicit. Yeah, you, you were complicit. As, <laughs> Ken was complicit as the monster that pushed everybody to the brink there. Well, that's not true. I was complicit as, as a cosmic bureaucrat who had uh, made a serious fuck up that he needed to cover up. Right. <laughs> The glory of that was discovering that the core opposition stemmed not from anything external, but the party itself. Mm-hmm. You were your own enemies. Yeah. It was a great example of emergent storytelling, not just in a, in a narrative collaborative form, but also a lesson for me as a writer going, if you give things motive force in a world that has truths to it, they will go their own way. That leads perfectly into, uh, I wanted to add. Despite me saying there's there's everything is in the gray, there are some absolute villains in this campaign setting. Sure. The people at the top of all the megacorps, with the possible exception of the police force, but the, the main three driving megacorps in this sector are led by absolutely horrific people who, you know, if they if they had godly powers would do terrible things, but they don't. They're just very powerful, important people that have to maintain, you know, the, the, the whole, that's, that's how it gets into the gray things. But that setup allows the players to favor one of those over another as their go-to villain. It lets them say, point at someone, paint it, point at one of these megacorps and say, I just don't like how they do things. And I think we're going to act against them instead of giving them anything Instead of giving them anything, they're driving that. But I was talking with Dave about the direction of the show going forward because we were just we just recorded our fiftieth episode last week, and part of me wondered why we 
I know why we as a group like to play storytelling games and role playing games, et cetera, because a hobby we've enjoyed. But as a as an educational, as an exploratory exploratory tool, why we like to perform storytelling that is so prone to misfires, miscalculations, explosions, weird turns, and surprises. I think in part because it becomes a laboratory as a way to test. Okay, here here's here's how stories are told. Let's take truths and premises and assumptions our fears and expectations and give them to living, breathing mentalities and see what they do to it. Well, I mean, emergent storytelling is the big benefit of role-playing games, just straight up. Like it's the best feature of it. All of the frustrations that you and I have with the completely not insane direction of Genshin Impact storyline are because there's no emergent storytelling. Because let's be honest, if there were, one or both of us would have done something just that MiHoYo never would to that world. <laughs> okay. It's probably a good thing we haven't recorded because we wouldn't just some peculiar place of trying to tease out what that should have actually been. There, without spoiling too much about it, we did have a conversation about why are there not crazy lobster people under the sea? Right. Because there's actually no narrative reason why there couldn't be within the world of that game. But there aren't. And it's very disappointing because what is down there is still pretty crazy, but it's not crazy enough for our tastes. It's not crazy enough for what the premise has said it should be. Yeah. That too. Yeah, it should be weirder. Like, it actually feels less weird than it ought to be, despite being still very weird. Yeah. <laughs> for those of you who know Genshin Impact, we're talking about the Enkonomiya storyline, which is a fairly recent one there. Which is why we're trying to refrain from some spoilers here, but yeah. Personally, I want it to be weirder than it is. So if you haven't played it yet, I'm sorry to you know give you that, but it's a lot of fun. <laughs> But I think it gets to the conversation about fears and expectations, because it's not just from the creator's moment of writing and telling the story, it's from the people who encounter or play through it, et cetera. You have your own beliefs as to what this could or should be. That- right. Or my deep disappointment that one of the four-star characters didn't show up in a place that would have been perfect for her recently. It's an island with a giant electromagnetic bird entity. How official was not on the island where they worshipped the Thunderbird doesn't make any sense. For those who don't know, this is a somewhat delusional character who is a talking raven that is made of electricity. Like, really, why is she not there? (laughs) Is that talking raven the minor form of the big giant Thunderbird island? No. Right. These are much more interesting questions than anything we got asked during that arc. (laughs) Yeah. But again, you set up, if you set up truths of the world, people will start deriving from that what should happen. And or my ongoing hatred of Amric in Final Fantasy XIV. <laughs> <laughs> your, your whole argument there is he's squinting. He does. He just he doesn't seem trustworthy. I genuinely believe that we will find out at some point before the game closes out that he has been pulling the strings on everybody the entire time. And the thing is, I don't disagree that that's possible. I don't think it's what the writers intend. It seems like an unlikely conclusion. But by God, I'm hoping they go for it. But to, to your point, your frustration there is you see them trying to write a character against what you read him as. Right. I'm supposed to like this guy. He's supposed to be a nice guy who helps you out and is like an improvement in the government of one of the, you know, city states in the game and this, that and the other. And I just don't trust him. Right. Despite kindly manipulating you into committing patricide for him. Now we are spoiling Heavensward. But, you know, whatever. Fine. It's Heavensward. It's like seven years old. Um, <laughs> all right. Amrick's the bad guy. All right. That was my reading of Heavensward, folks. <laughs> this is why Ken's the villain's advocate, because he looks for them when they aren't there. Speaking of, let's let Ken out of that coffin and tell us why we're killing him. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, so basically, the main reason you guys are killing me is because Dex is playing in the Stars of That Number game I'm running now, and I desperately want to discuss where that's headed in terms of, um, <laughs> in, in reference to villainy. 
let's say. But I can't. I, uh, <laughs> I think we should do a follow-up when that game is over, or we can have that conversation. Well, honestly, if you want to do that, there, I've got like three fairly high-quality like players, one of whom is Dex, in there who, I, who might be happy to do it, if we can accommodate their schedules. So that could be fun, honestly, to do a post-mortem on a one-shot. Or... That would be really fun, especially, uh, and, and I'll show up, you know, present uh, what I have of the world and uh, how Ken... Uh, used and abused it. Right. So it's important to bear in mind, folks, that I literally asked him if I could set this on one of his planets and am now just taking it where I think it should go. And it's probably not where he thinks it should go in some places. <laughs> it's it's contributing to the overall. It, as usual, Ken, you're doing a fantastic job. Is it overrun with psychic cephalopods yet? No, no, no. no. I, I haven't actually <laughs> thrown anything crazy at them at all, except possibly an elephant, but that at least made some sense in the cultural context of the world. That's mild for you. <laughs> wow, I'm I, I'm flattered, Ken. You're being restrained. I am. <laughs> I am. Dex, I can tell you he is. I've seen where this goes. <laughs> yeah, he's got some uh, he's got some notion what your destination is, and I'm being restrained. Mm-hmm. It does bring to mind something that comedian John Hodgman has said, uh, which I now take as a war I teach with, too, that specificity is the soul of narrative. Because if you give people the particulars, and part of what we're playing here, here is that when you, Ken is effectively playing the role of storyteller or author here, we, he, is, we has a tone we expect him to deliver on because he's done it before. But he is playing with our expectations of that in this case. We're, Dex, I suppose to a certain level, you're kind of waiting with bated breath for him to pull the rug out entirely, right? Uh, I'm, I wouldn't say waiting, planning for. <laughs> it's, it's a more specific version of waiting. Do you know, one of the most terrifying things I ever did to, one, to the group of players in that, in that magical school setting, they did a side story playing other characters where they ventured into uh, this village that was only full of old people and nothing else. And one of the kindly old ladies invited them in for toast and jam. And I don't know why, but they decided that a kindly old lady inviting them in for toast and jam had to be insidious. Something bad <laughs> must be coming of this. She had like a whole village of mice living in the walls that were in some type of communal co-op with her. <laughs> they just kept on waiting as she poured the tea, as she spread the toast. It's very hard sometimes when you've established a certain tone in a game to run a scene that doesn't have anything to do with that tone. In all seriousness, like... And very effective. You talk about what you guys expect of me. Generally, what they expect of me is that something terrible is going to happen at any minute, but maybe not right now. And so <laughs> it's very hard for me to run scenes where nothing terrible is going to happen as a result. <laughs> it, it, I, it's very hard to, like, turn on the light that says, no, you're cool. No, nothing's going to fall on your heads right now. I can't do it a lot of the time, but I try. <laughs> Because you, you do need to have that balance. I mean, we've been talking in, about this world that is got some severely dark connotations if you dig into it. Yeah. But you, you have to have the silly, the weird. I think it's why we dug into the hats for a while, because it is an absurdity. But it's an absurdity that reflects the logic of the people in the world. Well, do you remember City by the Sea, Jared? Yes. Uh-huh. So City by the Sea is a Vincent Price movie. <laughs> wherein Vincent Price has contrived to acquire ownership over a city under the ocean into which our Victorian explorers somehow find themselves. It doesn't make any real sense. It's a Vincent Price movie. They often don't, okay? The thing that gets me, and this is a great scene of world building, but also 
both terribleness and absurdity together. One of the side char- characters has a picnic basket in which his pet hen resides. It's never established clearly why this is. Why does he have this hen? We don't know. But they're effectively the comedy relief of the picture, right? And then there's a moment. <laughs> Do you want to tell it or should I? Because I don't it's know. great. But yeah, I don't know if I can deliver it in full. But all right. Well, so there's a moment where he leaves the picnic basket laying around inside Vincent Price's. Uh, I, I'm going to go with villainous lair because it pretty much is. Right? Vincent Price, he always has a villainous lair. Right. And Vincent Price is doing villainous things, you know, and then he sees the basket and he looks at the basket and the chicken pokes its head, its head out. And Vincent Price in the story of this movie has been under the ocean for a long time. He's stuck there. He's, you know, doing nefarious stuff. Right. And Vincent Price delivers this like really weird, only Vincent Price could do it like crazy face and goes, chicken. There'd been this whole monologue about he'd been living on fish for a hundred years. Uh-huh. Because what time under and what he that he'd lived for a hundred years because time underwater moves for. Right. There's some some kind of crazy nonsense. And, and the point is the man hasn't seen, let alone eaten a chicken, in a long time. And Vincent Price just delivers you this moment of like pure id. He sees the chicken and he wants that chicken right now. This is some desert island stuff. <laughs> and since we have this whole subplot for a few beats of Vincent Price tries to convey that I'm going to eat your bird. He plays he plays it really well because it's Vincent Price, but it's extremely silly in a movie that otherwise really isn't on that wavelength. Most Underwater chase scenes with tridents and crossbows. Right. I mean, it's weird. Don't get me wrong, but it's not like silly. You don't get what they're doing with crossbows underwater. <laughs> uh, th- those work underwater. Regular bows don't. So that probably was a necessity of the stunts. But anyway, uh, <laughs> I get that. But <laughs> uh, it, it still doesn't make any real sense. I'm with you. I'm just pointing it out. <laughs> the slowest chase scene I've ever seen, because, of course, it's shot underwater and everything moves slower. The only thing that really, oh, do you remember how the movie ended, right? No, I think they, they sank the city. They sank the city. They survive. Vincent Price escapes. And the moment he crawls into land and sees the sun for the first time, he crumbles to dust. What? Yeah. It's a Vincent Price movie. Hardly any of them make any sense, but they're all a lot of fun. Sometimes when you go against the established tone, which is what I'm going for, you get something great like Vincent Price uh, just clearly desperately wanting to eat a chicken that you wouldn't have had otherwise. And it's still a menacing scene. Yeah, no, like he clearly has like ill intent towards this chicken. It's going to end <laughs> up in his stomach. But like <laughs> uh, I was trying to explain Vincent Price to some people a while. And I, I looked up, I, I linked them the Gorgon Heap sketch from the Muppet Show, because I think that gets his whole vibe across really effectively. <laughs> That's another one you should put in the show notes just so everybody can appreciate it. That one needs to live. Yes. Yeah. So that's all for tonight. You can join us again in two weeks' time for the rest of the exercise, or leave your thoughts, ideas, and questions as an audio reply at, at anchor.fm slash herebetigers, that's with a Y. And be sure to follow us on Instagram at hbtigers. We'll see you all next time. A good story can excite us, yes. But the best ones, fiction or not, compel, inspire, or drive us toward the hope that we need for a better life. Remember, you don't need to know everything right now, but you do need to write. So make sure to like, review, and subscribe to us at Here Be Tigers. And until next time, take life by the tail. <laughs>